0: Oh, hello there. I'm Melinda Catherine Gross. And I'm Michael Nixon. And we like to talk about murder. Well, you like to talk about murder. Fictional murder, a (laughs) lot, uh, whether anybody wants you to or not. That's right. And Michael doesn't talk about murder nearly enough. So I would like to invite you all to join us as we explore the material of our favorite monster. Hannibal Lecter. Yes, each week we will be discussing and dissecting the film and TV appearances of Thomas Harris's infamous serial killer, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Mostly, I'm going to try to get Michael to eat people. I won't. You will. I might, but there's only one way to find out. Tune in to Having a Friend for Dinner, available on DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, bon appetit. Ooh. Dueling Genre.
1: everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Dorowski, and this week I'm joined by John Dorowski to discuss Victor Frankenstein and the creature from Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. Welcome, John. Thank you. And producer Andrew, I know you recently listened to this, so I think yes. you're jumping in on this conversation a bit mm-hmm. more. Uh, this one isn't isn't a request. It just feels right for this time of year to be talking about Frankenstein. Also, two hundredth anniversary of the publication. Yes, yeah, uh, big two hundred for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, so, if anyone is unfamiliar, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus is an eighteen eighteen novel. Some of you probably already know that math. Uh, that was
0: two uh, hundredth <laughs> anniversary. Yes, oh, remember Jeff. Never do math on the air. <laughs> right. And,
1: and this is evergreen. Someone might discover this three or four years from now. Uh, but it was written by Mary Shelley. And it tells the story of the scientist, Victor Frankenstein, who dabbles in some things he shouldn't and is punished. <laughs> boy, oh boy, is he and everyone he knows punished <laughs> for, for dabbling. <laughs> yeah. So, in pop culture, I don't think anyone can remember not knowing Frankenstein. Is that accurate?
0: It's pretty fundamental.
1: It's just it's the a, wallpaper of yeah. even kids' entertainment that there's references to Frankenstein.
0: But it's all kind of based on the 1931 film imagery. The faults yes. on the neck, the flat forehead. The, uh, yeah, the, 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 the stitching
1: mon- across. Yes. Yeah, the stitches and the monster who can't speak,
0: which yeah. is Grrr.
1: not the Frankenstein in this novel. I mean, this even, I mean, I didn't
2: watch the monsters. But like mm-hmm. it it makes it yeah. into the monsters. So if you saw Nick at Night, you might have
0: gotten, you know, yeah. glimpses of but Frankenstein imagery. Anytime Frankenstein appears in a cartoon, it's that imagery it's yeah. green it's skin. Green, which balls. is which
1: isn't even the you know, the James Wales film because that's black and white. It's just yeah. got picked up well, into it was our culture. the film
0: poster. Was oh, green. was
1: it oh okay, that's where the green heat comes from?
0: I mean it's Frankenberry. It's on cereal. Yeah, yeah it's, so. it's cereal boxes.
2: <laughs> There's you know I think it's it's commercials, nondescript toys where they they can just completely they can bypass any concerns of um, like copyright and Mm -hmm. just manufacture basically Lego toys that have Frankenstein imagery, and you know what it is it's it's iconic immediately. If you sketched out, you know the the square head bolts on the neck, stitches across the forehead, a kid's going to tell you Frankenstein. You know by the time they're six,
0: seven, eight years old. So this is one of those rare cases where an adaptation. Supersedes the original.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: in our popular consciousness. Yeah. Our, our,
1: our cultural conversation about Frankenstein is definitely the Boris Karloff portrayal in the James Wales, Wales film, not what Mary Shelley wrote in this novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but how did you guys? I know you've both consumed the novel at this point. How did you come to the novel, you know, the original novel source material for Frankenstein? Producer Andrew, you. I, I listened to it for this.
2: For this like, right now. This, yeah. That, we that knew was it, your first time reading We knew it, it was coming up and I was like, oh, well, I'll go for that. I mean, was exposed to the Wishbone episode on Frankenstein when I was much younger. Probably which more I, accurate
1: than many of the I, other adaptations. I don't remember <laughs> a lot of it,
2: but Wishbone the dog was Victor Frankenstein. And that's... I, I don't remember a lot beyond that because I think they must have glossed over a number of key details like multiple murders, <laughs> strangulation, fires... Yeah, how would Wishbone deal with the murders? So, I don't know how they <laughs> how they went for that, but I know there was a Wishbone episode, okay. and I remember the the imagery that they did for the monster in that case was not like the typical
1: Frankenstein. It was just you know like a big man, but he looked like a man. Okay, you know he didn't look all green and stitched. Real up quick for him. any listeners who don't recall the classic PBS series Wishbone, it was a dog who became the center of classic literature as his owner had adventures that
0: had parallel themes to mm-hmm. classic literature and if i may have a brief aside here for my favorite episode of wishbone okay because i don't know if you're going to do the tale of two cities a type soon joseph <laughs> <laughs> uh so listeners the the conclusion of tale of two cities which is about london and paris during, and paris during the french revolution is uh these two friends who are both in love with the same woman uh one friend is in French jail, and the other friend goes and takes his place. So he will be executed. Only one of them and is Wishbone. <laughs> yes, and so in the episode, one is Wishbone, and the other is human, and the jailer has the scene where he looks at both of them and just <laughs> it's like they could be twins! <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and... Tragically, Wishbone has not been made available on any streaming service that anybody can find. No. Even though people desperately want access to this Wishbone
1: content, it's just not out there. Yeah. All right, John, do you remember when you first encountered the actual novel by Mary Shelley?
0: Um, I seem to recall reading some abridged versions that were kind of made, made more for kids. That's probably my first introduction. But it wasn't until college that I read the full novel. Um for a couple of different courses on the Gothic and horror. And I've read it for my dissertation. I taught it in a literature after 1700s course. Mm-hmm. So I've read through it at least three times at this point. Right.
1: And, and you've taught it. So yeah. you you got some real familiarity and, with it.
0: And in-depth look at it for my dissertation yeah. and some uh, stuff I've written on The Incredible Hulk. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I remember vividly as a kid finding from our local library uh, like a graphic novel version but it was like it was printed in paperback size, and it was black and white art inside mm-hmm. of it. I don't think it was even the Classics illustrator; It was a different adaptation that someone had done at some point. But I had a big, like, Universal Monsters phase when those would air on TNT in, in October. Yeah. And so I think I was seeking out Dracula and Frankenstein text or, at the library. Or uh, AMC back when they actually showed classic films. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so I remember that was the first time I read it, and I remember reading. And that adaptation was more faithful to the Mary Shelley text than the film versions of Frankenstein I was familiar with. <laughs> and I remember thinking... This is not the movie. This <laughs> is not that the that Frankenstein I, mean I know. And I, I don't think I understood if, like, which one was the original source or what. I just knew this was really different. And, I, and there's a couple images from that that still stick in my head of the monster in the window um, after, well, one of the murders. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> you know they they and uh and the the arctic ocean at the end you know mm-hmm. some of those imagery from that version still stick with me and then i also remember reading some of the the earlier like like more kid friendly like classics illustrated not the graphic novel but just there's illustrations throughout a kid yeah. you know a kid Kid-friendly. uh-huh and then like you i read it in college and i've taught it and um i read it most in depth for an essay in an upcoming um, essay collection called Adapting Frankenstein is, I think the final title mm-hmm. that it landed on um, in which I wrote about um, an early X-Men comic in which they, the team of superheroes fight Frankenstein's monster. But because of some issues with the comics code where you cannot show zombies or the living dead in any way, uh, this, this version of Frankenstein is an Android that had been sent from outer space, but inspired Mary Shelley because the events of the novel largely <laughs> happened with this android from outer space, but they couldn't call it reanimated corpse parts. <laughs> and uh, and so that that's my my most in death reading was when I was working on that um a, a couple of years ago, and that that um, essay collection is coming out soon. All right. Well, John, you found a whole bunch of trivia about this, so I will let you read off most of the trivia. Yeah, shockingly. Uh, this is one of those cases where it's like, how much trivia do you want? Because we could just do the whole episode about Frankenstein trivia and yeah, just like the background hours. of it. Yes. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a podcast out there that's just Frankenstein. Shock, just yes, shockingly,
0: a 200-year popular novel has a lot of trivia, mm-hmm. uh, beginning with its origin. Now, even before then, we have Mary Shelley herself, who has a uh, lineage of... Great yeah, work, go go track down like some lore episodes that mention her. <laughs> yes, there, we'll get to those in a moment. But um, daughter of these very influential Enlightenment philosophers, her dad was a political philosopher named William Goodwin. And perhaps even more famously, her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, was a feminist philosopher at the time, writing the very influential essay Vindication of the Rights of Women. And the creation of the story is itself very famous, that uh, Mary Shelley was vacationing with her husband, Percy, the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley. Yes, they were married at this okay. point. Say, at
1: this point, were they married? Because they did have a bit of a scandal in their past. <laughs> yes, he had
0: previously been married. They started a relationship, uh, well, Mary Shelley and Percy Bysshe Shelley started a relationship while he was still married to someone else and had a daughter who unfortunately died very young uh, within a month, though not uncommon at that time period. Um, but at this point, they had were able to get married. Uh, they were also there with the mad, bad, and dangerous to know Lord Byron, and I forget who <laughs> actually referred to him as that, and uh, Byron's Dr. Polidori. Um, now, a little more <laughs> background on this. A uh, volcanic eruption in Indonesia the year before was very important to this because that was 1815. They were vacationing in 1816, which became known as the Year Without a Summer because of the volcanic ash circling the globe blocking the sun. Uh and so they had been hoping for a sunny vacation in uh Switzerland. Uh but instead it rained the entire time. They were stuck indoors debating things like uh theories of electricity, ver- uh, Volta versus Galvani. Also where we get terms volt and galvanization. Yeah. Uh And they were also reading some of the stories there, ghost stories and such. And they kind of decided we could write better than this. (laughs) And so they start each started a story. Uh, Mary Shelley was the only one to finish it as a novel. Polidori did write a short story called the vampire, uh, which may have been about Byron. Maybe not. (laughs) Um, Byron and, uh, Percy did not finish their stories.
1: Do we know why Byron was traveling with his doctor? That just seems like an odd pairing to have. Well,
0: (laughs) Byron was, I believe the term is pansexual now. (laughs) Okay. And so there may have been something there. Alright. But they can explain it
2: by being his doctor. Right. Well, he was a doctor too. Yeah.
1: And also, I mean, if I'm recalling Byron correctly, he might have needed some Rejuvenation at times from drunk overdoses.
0: Yeah. Um, drunk overdoses, some sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah. yeah.
1: Good, good yeah. to have his doctor Yeah.
0: Around. So, uh, Shelley began writing this when she was 18. <laughs> if
1: any of you want to feel a little depressed about your accomplishments, have yes. you altered all of world literature and popular culture by the time you're 18 years old? Yeah.
0: Well, she started writing with when she was 18. It wasn't published until she was 20.
1: Okay. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough.
0: Um, And then uh, she published a revised edition in 1831, uh, which had some changes from the original. And that is what we mostly read nowadays, though there's mm-hmm. some uh, attempts now to return to the original 1818 draft. Originally published anonymously, uh, a lot of theories about who was wrote, writing it. It wasn't until...
1: Uh, My favorite trivia about people trying to figure out who wrote it, when some of them like found any clues, they almost inevitably said... Percy. <laughs> no, no, nope. that's just your, yes. your dinner bias on display right <laughs>
0: Um Shelley's name came out in 1823 with the French edition of the novel. That's when she attached her name as the author. Um, and he, bringing up, uh, you, uh, producer Andrew mentioned episodes of lore that was a little less about Mary Shelley and more about her husband, Percy. Uh, But their family had several uncanny experiences Mm -hmm. that seemed supernatural that may have influenced some of this. And I do recommend tracking down those episodes of lore. The name Frankenstein was likely inspired by Castle Frankenstein. Sorry, not Castle Frankenstein. Frankenstein Castle (laughs) in Germany, um, which was first built in 1250. So the very old name. Um, And... The name itself uh, is German, consisting of two words. The Franks are a Germanic tribe, and Stein is the German word for stone. Okay. So, uh, Stone of the Franks. And a very, uh, Stein, very common throughout Germany. Um, so, at, certainly at the time, the term Frankenstein would have been an ordinary term, mm-hmm. uh, Stone of the Franks. Now, not so much. <laughs> okay.
1: Before we move on from the anonymous authorship... Um looking up I, I was glancing through some trivia too and one of the early reviews of the novel, um, the reviewer had heard that it was written by a woman. They didn't have the name. But in their review they said, and this is when they're trashing the novel, because they said, This one's not gonna last, this one's gonna be of no significance uh this is their review of the novel it says the writer of it is we understand a female this is an aggravation of that which is the prevailing fault of the novel but if our authoress can forget the gentleness of her sex it is no reason why we would and we shall therefore dismiss the novel without further comment
0: i I get into this in my dissertation about gothic literature being considered a female literature the female readers female writers Mm -hmm. and therefore second rate at that time period. <laughs> like, not worthy of study.
1: I mean, that was so dismissive.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. That not, sadly, not uncommon <laughs> yeah. at that period. We mentioned this is one of the most adapted works. Uh, Sherlock Holmes has the most adaptations in film. Yeah, for- yeah.
2: And, and And probably largely more... Um, with greater fidelity well, <laughs> to no, the
1: to the yeah. source, but Sherlock Holmes is like he's in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most adapted character. I yeah, think. Uh, I think. For both film and television,
0: Frankenstein's Monster would be up there. Yeah, mm-hmm. um,
1: definitely. That one of Dracula, off the top of my head, it's a, yeah, those are yeah. Our, mm-hmm. our, our big ones.
0: Up the yeah, up there is the top three. Um, both Marvel and DC have a version of Frankenstein's Monster in their pantheon. Uh, also, in the Hellboy universe, other comic book adaptations. We being comic scholars, yeah. have to mention this. Uh, and also a special shout out to Mike Arvid's Madman, uh, who was a character who was brought back to life, stitched together and brought back to life, and decided to take his name, the person had amnesia, decided to take his name from two of his heroes, Frank Sinatra and Albert Einstein. <laughs> and became Frank Einstein, <laughs> which is very clever. So there's some trivia yeah, two, about the novel. A
1: few, few hints of trivia. Uh, and uh, one other trivia I There's a meme going around with the Velociraptor, which is a Mm -hmm. Velociraptor that's looking thoughtful. And he says, um, "Oh, uh, knowledge is knowing that Frankenstein is not the monster. Wisdom is knowing that Frankenstein is the monster. (laughs) Um, So this is one of those kind of like Zelda and Link situations where if, if you play the video game, The Legend of Zelda, the main character in there is called Link. But a lot of people refer to that character as Zelda, because the game franchise was called Zelda. The monster in this is unnamed, sometimes referred to as Adam. Uh, no. And uh, never never really fully given that name, but he mm-hmm. re- I think he refers to himself as the Adam of his species. Yeah. So some people say his name would be Adam. Um but it's a so you you do get the pedants who will insist Frankenstein's monster versus Frankenstein, though in popular culture at this point, Frankenstein is synonymous with the, the creature yeah. as well as the creator of the creature. Um, but uh, regarding that meme, it is also worth noting the monster is a monster as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> I mean, uh, this may be dipping into like actual content, but it's like when you get into it, you do have to explore. Um, you do have to explore. A relatively complicated um like emotional response to it's like, oh the poor monster but it's like, no, this is a really bad monster, so I don't feel so bad. I mean, I wanna feel bad some of the time, but it's like, but a lot of this time, no, I don't wanna feel that bad <laughs>
1: There are moments where you definitely feel pity for the monster, mm-hmm. but it's early on before he starts to make informed choices. Once he's making informed choices and makes some of those choices, as we'll see in the long summary from John in a moment, it's like, no, he, he is a monster as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, we can d- discuss what makes each character a monster <laughs> yeah. in a few minutes. <laughs>
1: Before we get to that long summary from John, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening, and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support the show financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support our show with at least $8 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And at this point, John, we will turn it over to you for a full spoiler synopsis of... This 200-year-old novel, so I think spoiler warning's off. If you, if you haven't engaged with it yet, he could spoil it all.
0: We open during the 1700s with several letters from Robert Walton to his sister, Margaret Saville, describing his challenges captaining a ship to discover either the North Pole or the Northwest Passage. Either one would do. Uh, while trapped in ice, they rescue one Dr. Victor Frankenstein, who then, to explain why he was found on the ice alone, recounts his entire life story which Walton records for his sister. And should say, not just his life story, he goes back to how his parents met.
1: <laughs> I mean, when you're stuck in ice in the, near the North Pole, you got some time to kill. Yeah.
0: Victor was born in Geneva and sh- self-educated in natural philosophy from his father's library of medieval manuscripts. At 17, he was to set up...
1: I love the moment, though. So it's a, you say he's self-educated. He reads some of his father's manuscripts, and when he finds his father finds out he's reading those, he's like, "Those are pseudoscience. Don't read them." And the Victor's like, "Okay, well," and then he just keeps reading them. Yeah, he's uh, like, exactly. "Why doesn't the father this get rid of the, these?" This things? is the stuff. He, yeah, but, but his father's like, "That's trash. No one should ever read them. Why are they in your library?"
0: <laughs> because books are expensive That's and true. they're yeah. investment, and you want a nice looking library. <laughs> whether whether or not the exactly, shelf, yeah. whether or not it's actually good, yeah. you still want a good library, uh, but an impressive library. But yeah, in response to that, Victor doubles down. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> At 17, he was to set out to university, but was delayed by his mother's death, which left an indelible mark on Victor. Already late for classes, he is informed by his professors that all his previous learning is worthless, and he must start from scratch, learning modern chemistry and natural philosophy. By combining his new knowledge with his ancient learning, Victor decides on his first project, Life and death appear to me ideal bounds, which I should first break through and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. Which brings up the question, was this going to be his second project after life and death? What do you do as an encore?
1: Well, he's not thinking small. I mean, this, it's not rare for a fresh university student to think they're going to yeah. conquer their field. But, uh, well, what, one seven, thing to seven. conquer
0: your field, another to say, I'm going to rec- yeah. you know, defeat
2: death. Wait, 17, 18 year old, he comes in, they say, everything you've learned is, is wrong and outdated. Start learning the new stuff. Okay, my first project. I'm going to solve death.
0: Yes. <laughs> Which, for any English students out there listening, this is what is known as hubris. <laughs> Victor throws himself into the project, ignoring classes and family, stealing bodies to stitch together into the figure of a giant man. One dark and stormy night, he succeeds in bringing the creature to life. But Triumph immediately turns to revulsion as the monstrous body, sending Victor into a feverish delirium. The creature disappears, and Victor's friend, Henry Clerval, arrives to nurse Victor back to health. Two years later, Victor receives news that his youngest brother, William, has been murdered. The maid, who was really more like family, you know, as maids are, <laughs> uh, was accused and convicted of the crime. But Victor knew, seeing a shadowy figure in the distance at night during a storm after returning home, that his creation was responsible. <laughs>
2: Like, that is my monster. Also, it must have done it. Yes. And and his thought process is adamant (laughs) instantaneously. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, he is obsessed with the idea of this monster that he is convinced is evil, that he's unleashed on the world.
2: Which he has spent no time with.
1: Yes, but he's obsessed with the fact that this is out there and is going to do harm. So I understand why he makes the leap. He happens to be right. Yes. But but it does feel a little like, Victor. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the main did do it.
2: It's like, somehow... Miles and miles away, two years later, it has found your family and killed
0: one of them. Yes.
1: And framed your beloved maid.
0: Yes. Yeah. (laughs) To process their grief, the family takes a vacation to the mountains. While hiking alone, Victor is confronted by his creation. The superhuman monster, calling himself sometimes Adam, and we may use that name, uh, proceeds to recount his life story. Most of this involves hiding in a hut and spying on the family living there, through which he learned not only language, but about familial love.
1: And also some deep philosophy.
0: Surprisingly deep (laughs) philosophy, yes. Uh, This was largely due to the arrival of the son's fiancée, who recounts her life story, escaping as a slave from Turkey. Her education in language also becomes Adam's. Adam developed great affection for the family and finally decided to reveal himself. This is when he learned about hatred, for the family feared him based on his appearance alone. And his experience reinforced as the creature encountered more people on his wanderings. List led him to curse his exi- existence and his creator. Desperate for companionship, Adam thought to kidnap an innocent, unprejudiced child that he could raise to love him. <laughs> Unfortunately, the child he chose was William Frankenstein. Hearing the hated name, Adam killed the child and framed the maid. Just amazing coincidences, right there. Yeah. <laughs> Finishing his story, Adam issues an ultimatum. Victor must create for him a female companion, after which they will hide themselves from the world in South America. Because <laughs> that's a
1: place that the completely uninhabited <laughs> and would have no contact with humanity. And Victor's like, okay, that, that checks out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you can, you can live and not interact with anybody in South America. <laughs> so, yes, Victor does consent and leaves his family and his fiancée, his cousin Elizabeth, to travel to a remote island in England to commence his work. During the months that passed, Victor began to worry that his creations would eventually want children and begin to propagate a race of devils that could eventually replace man. Fearing this, Victor destroys his work on the female. His monster swears revenge and promises he will be there on Victor's wedding night. Returning from England, Victor is immediately arrested for the murder of his friend Henry Clerval. Though he knows it's his monster's doing, he also knows that no one will believe him. His father is able to intervene, and they return to Switzerland, where Victor is soon to marry Elizabeth. But, as promised, the monster is there, and kills Elizabeth on their wedding night. Victor's father, unable to bear another loss, passes away. And now Victor swears revenge on the monster, vowing to destroy what he has made. Revenge now is only purpose. Victor follows Adam through the most inhospitable environs of Europe, which the monster can survive just fine, and on into the Arctic, where Robert Walton found him. Having told his tale, Victor soon passes away. Learning that scientific discovery is not always worth the high cost, and facing a possible mutiny, Walton decides to turn back to England. But before the ship leaves the icy Arctic, they receive one more visitor. Frankenstein's monster comes to bid farewell to his creator and tormentor, and, promising to have no more interaction with man, disappears into the darkness and distance. The end.
1: That was a good summary. Mm-hmm. Um... Th- I, this is a tangent, so I'm just going to get it out of the way first. When I taught this, one of my students said that they kept waiting for the reveal to be that there was no monster. Victor was crazy and was committing these murders, and then blaming it on, <laughs> a, on, monster on, on, on a monster that he had, which does not check out. Like it, that's not the story we have, but I kind of like that story too. Mm-hmm. Like you could do a like a retelling of this where that is what happens, uh, particularly like the the murder of his. His younger brother doesn't that, that time, timeline yeah, doesn't work. Yeah, that one. That'll be happen. have to. He, he, Victor a, was back home. He visiting. has an alibi. Yeah, Victor was back home visiting like, when it happens, and, he, and like he just he has memory of these. He things wasn't things. visiting yet. He was. Yeah. He was, he was, on was still. No, no, no. I'm saying that's what would have to happen in the yeah. retelling for that to yeah. check out. Yes, um, but I do like the idea of that. But again, that's not the story we have. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but,
2: there dude. there really is a creation. Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: Which. Um, again, like the the vision of our popular culture, um, the the uh, versions of Frankenstein that we're given, the creation scene is often the climax of like Act One of mm-hmm. these stories, and it's usually the most amazing sets, the, the like hyper Tesla coils yeah, Tesla and coils tanks going, of fluids. lightning through the windows and the mm-hmm. sky, bubbling fluids everywhere, um, with lots of switches being thrown. Yeah, a, a massive table with a sheet over it. In the book, it's basically him saying. I don't want to tell anyone how they how I did this because they might do it too. And it was a stormy night, and an I opened, and then I had a mental break for the next two years, basically. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and there really is no creation scene in the book, per yeah, se. Yeah, there's, as, there's as far no as how we see them in movies like, all the time. It's it's alive.
2: It's alive. My creation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, it really just switches. Like, I'm going to be sick, and he leaves the room.
0: Yeah, and this is uh, one of the things about adaptation. And it was very soon uh, after once they started doing adaptation on the stage that that became the centerpiece. Every adaptation emphasizes mm-hmm. that because it's very visual.
2: Yeah. And it, <laughs> and it feels like it builds up to it and then it kind of doesn't deliver in the book. Mm-hmm. Like it, he he spends a lot of time talking about like, and I was digging up graves and sewing together corpses and I was doing all this work and I was starting to get sick and like the effect it had on him, which works to really build all that tension over the course of months in, in a few short paragraphs. But then you get to that moment
0: and then he just kind of like switches gears and he's like, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> yeah. But it's even though it's just a few paragraphs, it's a really impressive switch that Mary Shirley is able to bring about of moving from terror to horror mm-hmm. within a few sentences. Mm-hmm. where uh, before then he is all excited about this awe inspiring work that he's doing. He's challenging God, entering mm-hmm. God's domain, and he's so excited. And then the thing opens his eyes and he's immediately revolted mm-hmm. by it.
2: Yeah. And it seems, it seems to be like revulsion beyond just like this body is gross, which like they they always talk about. it It's like this looks gross, and he's he's too big, and you know the proportions are a little bit off, and things like that. They talk about it like that, but like it really seems like it's something deeper than just like no, this is this is scary and creepy. It, it seems to be something.
1: Well, I mean, with the, the, the subtitle of the modern Prometheus. This is he realized. I did go too far. It's yeah. not just I made something that was ugly. It's, oh, I was not supposed to. Yeah,
2: because he well, doesn't he doesn't say, well, I can do it again, but I'll do it with like a clean body or a fresh corpse or something like that. He doesn't switch into that. He's like, no, this was, this was, was a, the, a the wrong, wrong thing to do
1: from the beginning.
0: Uh, and it's part of it is that he's moving from the idea of doing this to an actual object. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, part of what's upsetting. And this again gets into that difference of terror and horror. And part one I want to discuss is, well, these are scary emotions, they're not pleasant. Why do we enjoy reading about these or watching films about these? But I want to briefly clarify about the difference of terror and horror. And this is a very famous quote from the premier gothic novelist of the nineteenth century, Anne Radcliffe, who defined them as Terror and horror are so far opposite that the first expands the soul and awakens the faculties to a high degree of life. The other contracts, freezes, and nearly annihilates them. So to help illustrate this, because <laughs> yeah, ni- 19th century prose there. <laughs> um, so this is an example from my friend Daryl Johnson. Thank you, Daryl. There's a deadly poisonous spider in this room. How do you react?
2: A little tense. <laughs> and it's like, okay, feet off the ground. And And I start scanning everywhere. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You start scanning. You open your ears to any unusual noises. Yeah.
2: I want to know where that is so I can avoid
0: it. Yeah. So you're expanding your senses or as Radcliffe says, expanding your soul. The space has become terrifying. Okay.
2: So that is terror.
0: Yes. That deadly poisonous spider is on your shoulder.
1: Well, I either freak out. And start rolling around, <laughs> before I freeze <laughs> and
0: mm-hmm. say, get
1: it off, get it off, get off.
2: Yeah. So and, and so you're and now that's like a pure reaction. It's instinctual. It's you know you're not using your senses for that. It's no. just something's happening.
0: You con- well, it's not that you're not expanding your senses. You contract your senses to only the spider. Yeah, yeah, that's, like that's all you're paying attention to. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you freeze. You're like you're not going to reach up and brush it off your shoulder. Yeah, you're i ask someone else to get that. Yeah, like you're frozen for a moment. You can't move uh, because now you have an object. That is horrifying you. It's directed... Uh, all your senses are directed at a very pinpoint location. And you have something concrete so that's, t- that's horrifying. In in like a... And usually horror is also built around the body. Right. Uh, especially if that body is violated, like wounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why slasher films have such violence as they're trying right. to build that horror.
2: And so you're dealing with... So like in a movie sense, terror is... Knowing that there's a monster in the movie and horror is seeing the monster or seeing its action. Yes. Like seeing, right. seeing the evidence of the monster. Whereas like if you know that there's something out there and it's killing all your friends at the lake, that's terror. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you see that or you see one of the bodies, you're into horror. Yes.
1: Yeah. So okay. Like, like the Hitchcockian atmosphere, that's more Terror. Like mm-hmm. It's just yeah. building a sense, and you're like waiting a sense waiting of, a sense for of dread, and you're waiting for something to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then when you get to the jump scene, that's where horror <laughs> starts. Yeah, starts and
0: coming. you have that switch in your reaction. Okay, now should say terror doesn't have to be um, about this dread, or mm-hmm. uh, it can be something that's awe-inspiring. That uh, Shelley uses the Arctic setting or mm-hmm. some of the mountain scenes, expressing how impressive they are and she basically yeah. can't have words a she lot can't of, describe a it. lot of
2: grandeur yeah she kind like,
0: of is using well, the same words over and over because she can't express it because it's too vast it's that, too big
1: that's the uh i mean you see this a lot in gothic but that's the sublime where simultaneous yes. delight and terror like you're in mm-hmm. awe and it's both terrifying but also you can't look away because it's so awe-inspiring right yeah. I mean, you know it's it's uh um the example for like, what the real sublime, not like, lime sublime shakes from. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But the real sublime would be like, um, like, acts of nature, like, the, the legitimate massive waves where they're like, oh nature <laughs> yeah. is so far beyond or I would imagine like the first people when you, the first time you actually see like a rocky mountain or you know like, mm-hmm. the real mountains it's like yeah. oh, we're seeing we're seeing is, a view from yeah. a mountaintop. nature yeah. is beyond what I've comprehended before yeah I well, think I people
2: guess. get that from like the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. talk yes. about that yeah. um and in the book I think when he meets the monster at the glacier um yeah. on, on the mountains I think that's that's what I was imagining was was a really awe-inspiring Glacier mm-hmm. mountaintop. There's nobody else around. Frankenstein is alone, and then he sees the monster approach. And it's kind of, you know, it's the glacier, but also the monster is is doing that yeah. sublime terror, mm-hmm. yeah, um, all of that. So it's like she did a really good yeah. job with some symbolism here.
1: Well, <laughs> and uh, I mean, in crediting Mary Shelley, this is one of the iconic um gothic novels that really sets in tone uh, you know in stone a lot of these like obviously there were gothic stories before but a lot a lot of what comes after you, is going to be Do you want be... the history? I can give you the history. <laughs> yes. yeah. But a lot of work's gonna have to uh, after is, is what's been codified by Frankenstein. Yes. Um it's one of the, the key texts that kind of put a, a lot of pieces together.
0: I well, anyway, like I mentioned Anne Radcliffe, best selling author of a period. How many of our listeners actually know who's <laughs> yeah. heard of her? I got I got nothing for her. <laughs>
1: Um, but I also want to say, this is um, often considered one of the very first science fiction texts, too. Yes. Um, so it's it's not just, uh, like, an iconic gothic text. Mm-hmm. It is one of the very first science fiction texts. In, yeah, in and,
2: the and almost like proto-science fiction, because it's like, Frankenstein is a scientist, but he doesn't talk about his science much. Yeah, it's, it's the hand-wavy
1: science yeah. of science fiction. Yes. It's like,
2: and then I did it, and I'm not going to tell you how, because then you might do it, and I, I'm... I'm not letting that happen.
1: Yeah. Uh, certainly it's it's not hard science fiction. <laughs> yeah. Um, for a number of reasons. Uh but uh Mary Shelley, I think, um, uh, sometimes gets un- undercredited. I I mean she's a known name in literature, mm-hmm. but she's undercredited for how wide um the, the trail is, is. Of, of her impact. And also, I mean, like um so the editors of Adapting Frankenstein um that I've met Essie in, it's uh Dennis Perry and Dennis Cutchins, they are working on a project of um versions of the Frankenstein story that aren't Frankenstein. So, like we said, there are dozens and dozens of adaptations of this text. And there are dozens and dozens that aren't adaptations of the text about a Frankenstein monster. There are also dozens and dozens and dozens of stories that are basically the man playing with power that they don't understand that unleashes something uh, that is going to punish them. So, Jurassic Park is a Frankenstein text. Right. It's not Frankenstein.
0: Yeah, it's about science run amok.
1: Mm -hmm. And man, you know, nature finding a way because man messed with nature. Yeah. And (laughs) nature saying, man, you you will will be put in your place. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, so, going back to one of my earlier questions, why do we enjoy scary stories?
1: Well, I think we enjoy the scary stories from our safe places.
0: Yes, there's an aesthetic distance. Yes, mm-hmm.
1: so you like it on the screen, you like it on the page in front of you, and you like feeling the adrenal rush, with while part of you is always knowing, I'm actually quite safe yeah. sitting yes. in this movie Theater or in this... Uh, you know, this stage theater where, you know, if you're watching a play or in front of your, your TV screen.
2: Yeah. And so like when I was, so I'm listening to it, book on tape. And if I am in a basement moving boxes and it gets to the part where he's talking about, you know, body parts and the monsters coming, I'm like, I'm going to go do something in a brighter light <laughs> for a few minutes. So, you know. Or, I, I
1: Or you can, you are in control. You can yeah. pause, you can stop reading. Yeah. yeah. And
2: so, and so it's like, okay, I stop. I will come back to it. Tomorrow morning, when it's light out, you know, something. And and so having that level of control for the novel, very refreshing. Yeah. Um, and, and being able to control how much fear... Because, like, I, I push myself to a little bit in the dark, you know, while, while <laughs> yeah. it's nighttime and, and it's getting to this, this climactic moment. I'm like, okay, but I don't want to go to bed like this. <laughs> yeah. And so I need a palate cleanser or I need to, to switch gears at some point before I actually... Make myself alone with my own thoughts. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, and so uh, part of this is that you have that aesthetic distance, but then we are, uh, we get pleasure from it because it's catharsis. Mm-hmm. We experience these negative emotions that we don't want to experience in real life. Yeah, but and and you get to break away yeah, from it so, when you when you want to instead of in
2: real life when it's like, well, now you're stuck with that for however long. It Neil it takes.
0: Gaiman, who talked about literature, as an antidote to life.
1: Yeah, an emotional inoculation. Yeah, that's
0: it. Inoculation, yeah. and so this catharsis is that inoculation, so that. You experience these negative emotions, and then when you unfortunately will encounter it in real life, we sadly do, uh, you have some preparation. You've been exposed. You've been exposed. To safe levels of it before mm-hmm. well, that it kind of has
1: prepared your, your body and your so, mind
0: yeah, for. So is, that hopefully you can cope. Yeah, and that's
2: that's exactly like a um like a vaccination. A flu vaccine mm-hmm. is, you know, it is all of the kind of evidence for your body to recognize the flu without any of the actual substance of it yeah yeah or or dead just the external Mm -hmm. body of it so your body says that's the shape of flu i better get ready to respond to flu but there's no actual substance of flu for you to get sick Mm -hmm. um and so yeah the same the same thing where you get to
1: or in the also loss in this i mean yeah yeah. my goodness is death an omnipresent (laughs) part of this story about (laughs)
2: about bringing something back to life
0: Yeah. yeah well that's what really inspires him and i don't think gets really any attention on many of the adaptations is it's really his mother's death that's affecting him but mm-hmm. he's still grieving and he says i will conquer death with the idea i will bring my mother back
1: yeah i don't think yeah. that ever gets said explicitly mm-hmm. no. he doesn't really dig but into it, it
2: even with anyone else's death i mean that's after he's done the monster yes. and so it's
0: at exactly that point he's he, yeah
2: he's he's kind of turned off and he never considers it mm-hmm. with with any of his loved ones um after well, he's, he's he engaged with the monster yeah, He already knows no. what the cost of it Yeah, yeah I'm not doing it but, uh,
1: but I really like that as a character motivation mm-hmm. that is unstated But if you start to dig into like why is he so Oh okay yeah. That makes sense right away mm-hmm. um, And also uh, she does enough work to both give him That motivation, to desire to overcome it But she gives him the weird um, pseudoscience Background that is being the, layered on With the actual science And that mm-hmm. is a
0: very gothic thing Because going back to the original gothic novel uh, Castle of Otranto the uh, the author Horace Walpole his, his stated goal was to combine medieval and modern ideas of romance, romance in the literary term, not in yeah. love. And so we have that same theme here of bringing medieval and modern together to create something. Yeah,
2: and I mean, this book really does capture the like the fundamentals of the Gothic feeling. Like if, oh, yeah. if you read or listen to this, you're like, oh, I feel. I feel like the the dark skies and the clouds and the storms and the the trees without leaves and you know all these tropes of of gothicness without it just being spelled out, you just feel it it well, she you th- creates the
0: sensation you feel that atmosphere of dread of terror, but yeah. also then a lot of dead bodies <laughs> yes. and that brings yeah. that horror element uh-huh. but like you never picture anything being well lit in this entire <laughs> novel
2: It's like it's like i I mean I know they've got candles and stuff, but like I almost never picture anything
0: being lit, yeah
1: um talking about the the writing um this is like a nesting doll of stories
0: <laughs> another gothic t- yeah. theme
1: which is uh, um a lot of early gothic novels are epistolary
0: yeah mm-hmm. and, so... and also a lot of these nesting narratives of someone discovering a text of someone else and mm-hmm. you have the layers and someone else telling them about the so you discovered. have uh, very unreliable narrators. It's often in first person and th- but it's also being told second. Third, <laughs> but, it, but it's yeah, second yeah, it's, and third it, hand
2: first it's, it's first person telling someone else's first person, telling someone else's first yes. person.
0: Telling someone what else is saying, first person. Victor Frankenstein has an incredible memory. He is <laughs> for, quoting letters verbatim. Mm-hmm. He's telling the story His the monster told him yeah. well, verbatim.
1: Well, also, the the sea captain is the one who's actually putting this all down. So he has a, uh, a fabulous memory because it, it says at the end, like, after he told me all this story, I thought this needs to be written down. So I wrote it down. And that's the letter. Yeah, so, I, know, so at written.
2: the end of each day, I've been trying to write down the best I can recall. But that means Victor Frankenstein is talking for hours
1: at a time. And then I'm going in and trying to write down everything that he told me. Um, one of the early reviews, again, when I was poking around for trivia, and there was an early review that, that complained that there were multiple narrators who had all had the same voice. And I thought, well, actually, there's only one narrator in this text. Yeah. It really is. Really the, being the sea captain. Through the sea captain. Mm-hmm. At the Writing
2: end. to his sister. So it's a very specific uh, narrator to audience.
1: Yeah. Um, and yes, he is going to be telling these different points of view. Again, this, these weird nesting dolls. where the, I think the farthest we get is... Frankenstein, or uh, so Victor Frankenstein, telling the monsters, telling of the uh, family's mm-hmm. story or, or or the fiance's yeah. story within the yeah, family.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, so my um, my book on tape it was narrated by Dan Stevens um, from from
1: Beauty the, and the Beast and, down, uh, Abbey. down the Abbey.
2: yeah, and, and, and various other things. He's yeah. um, but in each nest he had to kind of pick a voice that he could do for hours at a time, and so when you get to Victor Frankenstein, he has a certain cadence and tone that he's doing for, for Frankenstein's voice telling it. And then when he gets to the monster, he's telling it in the monster's voice. And then when it's the, um, the, the people in the house, it's, mm-hmm. it's her voice and, and all of that. And it carried through rather nicely. I think it was a really nice yeah. touch, um, really? for the narration for you to say, it's like, okay, it is a little bit different. I mean, the words are pretty consistent, um, you know, I don't think it really changes voice too much, um, but he he changed his voice in an, in an audio sense, so there, um, which was nice.
1: There's a narrative device called a chiasmus, which is you you often it's thematically you go inward a b c d and you come out you see, in a, reverse. And you come out in yeah. c b a. So you begin and, in and a, I think this nesting actually does that. Where yes. it starts with the mm-hmm. the frame story, which you only get at the very beginning and the very end of the novel, and mm-hmm. that's the only time he, you're most explicitly seeing him writing. And yeah. then there's Victor. And from Victor, you go into the monster, and then from the monster, you go into the family, and then you come back out to the monster, monster and then back Victor. out to Victor, and then back out to, mm-hmm. the, to the Arctic Explorer. So it is, yeah. um, there. there's a rhythm to it, and it's such a rhythm that you can kind of forget about the initial layers that you're in as you're going in deeper and deeper.
2: Yeah, you like, get so much Victor that you forget about the ship.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things I want to talk about briefly before we really get into Victor and his monster, of uh, what is the point of the ship captain and the slave girl from Turkey.
1: Because so I think the, the, the two ends of these yeah. nesting dolls, so the, the outer one and yeah. the yeah. inner yeah.
0: Because I think they're very thematically important because they're reflecting on right. some of these themes, but... I want to talk about that for a moment. So,
1: so the themes that stand out to me would be for the sea captain, um, like the pushing the boundaries of human knowledge, yes, right? discovery and, at and, the at the expense of others, and at the expense of his own life and possibly his crews. Right. Yes. And so he's he's treading on the edge that Victor just shot right past. Right. right. He's, yeah. Um. And for the the slave girl, it's prejudice. Right. Is that which is yeah. more for the monster? He feels that kind of prejudice. Like this is his introduction both to um the Cruelty that humans can have towards other Mm humans um, for a lot of ways. And also, though, the need for love and how love can overcome that cruelty. And that's what he's really seeking out is love and acceptance. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's a recent episode of The Good Place. And I'm not not going to try to spoil anything. But they talk about uh, kind of our initial impulses and first being me versus them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when you overcome that, it's us versus them. That once you belong to the group. But othering. You, sti- you still are othering someone else, so that you have your self definition, and yeah. so this is important for identity formation. But as they point out, it also leads to all these negative consequences of um, any form of prejudice. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, so in in my job, um, I do orientation training for my company, and um, we have uh, relationship philosophies that we use, and and these are concepts that we we use. In you know, I do this. Every other week, you know, I'm talking about these things about othering and us versus them or um, we reference um, philosophy for I, thou versus I, it and um, all these kinds of things. So um, when they got into that stuff, I'm like, oh, I totally get, you know, the discussion of prejudice and, and belonging and, um, and and even like the othering based on nothing, you know, and then you get Frankenstein. It's based on,
0: That's not me. Therefore. Yeah, yeah,
2: not me. You, you yeah, have me and that, not me. And
1: that's enough for some prejudice to
0: be yeah. And
2: then Yeah, and then you eventually establish us and not us. Mm-hmm. And Frankenstein is stuck with the me and not me. Like, there, there's nothing yeah. else. There, you know, well, he's yes, dealing with they, a very...
1: His he's mon- trying to find an us. But yeah,
2: yeah,
0: his monster is definitely the me Sorry, versus...
2: Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. I, was, I, I did the thing <laughs> yeah. for, it, for it to the monster by...
0: <laughs> Which doesn't work when you talk about the novel, yeah. specifically. Yeah. And uh, so I think those are thematically important to mm-hmm. create those parallels. Um, but they're paralleling the characters themselves. So let's get into. Okay.
1: Was there anything else you wanted to dig out from those,
0: though? No, I just wanted to okay. briefly mention why they're even there.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and so,
0: do you want to talk about Victor or, or the monster, the creature or Adam? Okay. Well, it's going to be kind of hard not to talk about them because they are foils, right? So they're well, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and awesome in what ways are they foils? I think that's an interesting point to raise.
0: So one thing is and you mentioned this before, nature versus science. So you brought up these examples of these Frankenstein stories where it's man crosses the line and nature pushes back. And so here we definitely have a case of science going too far. And so Victor is all of these ideas about science and rationalism Mm -hmm. coming from the Enlightenment tradition. Um, He's upper class. He's educated. uh, He's bringing science to bear on these ideas, thinking that science can solve everything very mm-hmm. much an enlightenment idea where even when they started taking, it's not, it's not just science as we know it. It was, we can rationalize, not rationalize, but using rationale, we can fix everything. Yeah. We can we think can through this problem society. We can solve all these problems. Society. That's where Wollstonecraft wrote the vindication of the rights of women mm-hmm. might have solved the problem of women in society.
1: Well, not the problem of women. The sorry, but how women have been treated. Yeah, by society. yes. I am sorry,
0: I misstated <laughs> the, the, that. The Thank you for correcting me. Facing women yeah. in society. Thank you, because <laughs> <laughs> that came off very bad, very poorly. I knew exactly
1: what you meant.
2: <laughs> yes, came off poorly. Um, yeah. So, so Frankenstein mm. is dealing with um wanting to use science to overcome nature, yes. and then that would mean the monster is. I mean, he's trying to pursue nature. Yeah. Essentially, he's he's, he's saying I I want to not be alone, and he, that is. A natural. Well, he
0: is uh idea of Rousseau's noble savage, I forget if Rousseau was writing before this period or not. Do you recall when Rousseau was writing French philosopher? Yeah. yeah
1: it's <laughs> to- I, Todd's gone, but I, we
0: can I, still I, talk philosophy. I can <laughs> nail it down
1: to the eighteen hundreds, but I can check the recesses <laughs> yeah. of my mind. Um, yes. Get back down to uh, Yeah, because
2: so the the monster awakens and and in his story he goes out in the forest, he forages um, he learns to to eat.
0: Yeah. naturally. he learns everything oh. from nature. Yeah, he's I
1: learning straight. I, I said eighteen hundreds. It's late 1700s. I was
0: good. Gonna... So, so like, okay, so, so, so it was before. Yeah, and so Shelly. he goes
2: and it and is purely nature, and then he encounters fire and can use fire, but then it goes out and he can't create fire. Yeah. So he's unable to use science.
0: Yeah. So he and if you are again like to. Uh, nature versus nurture debates he's not nurtured at all he yeah. learns from nature he and one of the surprising things i picked up on this what this time was he's a vegetarian yeah <laughs> he said he specifically says i basically can't eat meat i don't need to i survive on I, berries and yeah. roots yeah, yeah berries yes. nuts and roots nuts, yeah and and he
2: learns how to like cook them he's like i put the berries in the fire and it ruined them i put the roots in the fire and it much improved them <laughs> and so he's you know he's going through a natural process but at the same time he talks about it's like I can't use fire. Like I can't. Yeah. I can't bring fire with me. When there's a fire, I can. I can feed it. I can use it. But then he leaves that fire and it's like I, I, it went out. Create. Yeah, it went out, and I couldn't do anything. I, and I can't create. Of
1: can't create. Yes. That's
0: big issue. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but also, uh, when we get to his education, it's a very informal education. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Doubt that... Like, but, they were oh, reading a few texts. I was going
1: to say, it's informal, but it's pretty deep.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he got at least well, French and possibly German? <laughs> I think this is one of the key things, is it, this informal education. But he still is, from there, able to make these great leaps of knowledge. Yeah. He is extremely is eloquent.
1: Pilgrim's Progress? Is that one of the ones That's that That's Pilgrim's
0: about? Progress. Um, the, the... Milton. Paradise Lost. Paradise, Paradise, Paradise Lost. Lost. Is a few, because mm-hmm. he compares himself to... The Devil in Paradise Lost. Yeah, several times. and I think that's where he got the Adam mm-hmm. stuff um, deeply. Yeah, and so he's he takes the knowledge that he's given, which is scatter shot, uh, limited. Yeah, it, but observing one family to so much based on his natural learning.
2: Yeah, he has a, an extensive natural learning, and and they talk about like his his natural capacities are greater than than mm-hmm. man's, and that that goes for his learning and his physical capabilities. His they, mm-hmm. they talk about his strength and speed and physicality. He's he's doing these great things. He's he's massive. He's seven feet tall.
1: Which this is, a, this is a, such a minor point, but he was using corpses. Like, was he adding like different sections know. of bones? I
2: wondered that too.
1: It's you like know. it's I like you
2: don't you don't do like, you know, one one thigh and one calf and get seven feet. You yes. know, if yeah, you're just doing one to one, so you've got to be adding like
1: one and a half thighs. Yeah, and one and a half calves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
2: you, you've got to be adding something somewhere to to get that
0: that size. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so. I think we see this very much when the monster finally confronts Victor on the... On the glacier. On the glacier. Because uh, his goal is to reason.
1: Mm-hmm. He
0: says... Like, he so so much wants to get angry. <laughs> but yeah. he's like, but I'm going to reason he's with like, you. <laughs> I want to talk to you. I could kill you right here. Yeah. But I want to mm-hmm. talk to you. Yes. And I will reason with you. And you will see that my idea is the good one. Um, but he's coming from a very different background. Yeah. And so... Uh, you have all these class situations. You could talk about Freud, Ego, and Id, uh, that, I mean, basically any kind of foil you probably find within Mm -hmm. these two.
1: Well, and also, I mean, there's the obvious that Victor made life and boy, does that monster take life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
2: And and in fact, can't make make life. And Victor never takes life. Never takes life. Yeah, you know,
1: his sin is making life yeah inappropriately. Yeah, yeah you know. And so,
2: do do we need to like list out the murders just so it's clear? So he so, kills uh, Victor's uh, brother,
1: Victor's brother, which is he's like nine. Yeah,
2: his youngest yeah. brother William, and that's after that's his first murder. Right? It was after he burned down.
1: He burned down the home where the family lived, but there's and, no and they offended part.
2: him. That, well, no that, that was after they had fled from yeah. him. He was that's angry when, and burned it. Yeah, down. he really gets angry and it's like, oh, this this is a problem. Anger is not good here. Yeah. yeah. Um, and cause up until this point, it seems like the monster is relatively sympathetic. He's learning, he's trying to educate himself, he's trying to better himself, he's seeking a relationship and then that's not offered to him and it goes very badly, very quickly. Yeah. And then, um, he rescues a girl, but gets shot and, um, and so he's not so, feeling so good he, about people.
1: Right. So so it's not just that, um, he wants to punish Victor. Is that he is punished for doing good? Like he, he's trying to understand moral meaning, and as mm-hmm. soon as he does good, he gets punished every time.
0: And I, I think that's one of the key things is also that um, since his education is so informal, he does have that. He's trying to understand morality, and he's yeah. getting he, all he these messages. He doesn't, that he doesn't. He doesn't get messages. the well, and I, like the element of his
2: education that he's really lacking is that interpersonal relationship yeah. education. It's it's the the we build connections, we build relationships with people, and that's fundamental to our future interactions with all other people. And he doesn't get any of that. Well, ever. the closest
1: he gets is with the the father in this family. That he, mm-hmm. yeah. he, Who is blind. He's blind. He goes into the blind man and he and has he... a full conversation with him. And the blind man is, like, very accepting of him. It mm-hmm. seems like a fairly intelligent person. They're speaking. And it's when his family returns and sees, to them, a monster. So they scream and, and try to and protect their father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, the... the The bond that had been forming gets severed immediately, and he gets met with prejudice. Yeah, and then he saves a child and thinks he's going to be praised and he gets shot. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, and and um, and then he thinks that he's going to take this other child and save and raise basically his existence
0: has been suffering most of his Mm -hmm. time. Even even when he's
1: tried to do the right thing, like he tried to open up an a dialogue with the yeah. family.
2: He was he careful about it. He he spoke to the the yeah, grandfather. He had planned it out yeah. very carefully. And then and then it was. I mean, I think this was a an ill advised choice. It's like I'm going to steal a child, raise him. <laughs> yes. He will be my liaison to humanity. It's like that's that's not right. going to go well. And it didn't go well. But
1: nothing had gone well for him so far. He's just yeah. trying a new tact.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and this one doesn't go well. And then um, and then he hears Frankenstein's name and and just kills the child. And that's where it switches, Remind really. Me. And then he immediately frames somebody associated yeah, with the family. Where, it's like, okay, this is turning real bad. And, and he so, has like a monologue talking about, it's like, my sole purpose will be to torment you and kill everyone that you love, even if that means the entire
0: human race. <laughs> yeah. So he kills the younger brother, indirectly responsible for the maid's death.
1: Yes. Frames her so she will be killed. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Kills Henry Clarival. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's Elizabeth, the next one. Uh, then Elizabeth. His wife. Yeah, Victor's mm-hmm. wife. Yeah. And which the, causes the father. the father to die. And that's everyone that Victor had. No, right? He has another brother named Ernst. That's right. Who survives?
1: It is mentioned I forgot like about twice that in
2: the yeah. novel. I was like,
1: there was someone else. And guess what? Other writers have done.
2: <laughs> They've written it from Ernst's perspective. No, 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 wait.
1: They're going to continue the Frankenstein line <laughs> through Ernst, and guess what? They're going to do some bad choices.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> about where the boundaries of man and god lie. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so there a lot of these uh, stories that are continuations either just follow the monster mm-hmm. or follow the Frankenstein line as they are all mad scientists who have, to, right. who have this uh, innate will to create life. And I think this is best illustrated in uh, the comedy Young Frankenstein.
1: Frankenstein! Yeah, where he <laughs> tries to
0: deny it so hard. Mm-hmm. Um.
2: Yeah, so so there even was a surviving family member. Yes.
1: Yes, just the one. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and he, which which uh, I do have to say, I'm not sure if that was an oversight by the monster or by Mary Shelley. Which
2: <laughs> is like, I got to wrap this up.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I forgot. I forgot there was the a brother. <laughs>
2: um, and and the monster, I think, tried to frame um, Victor for for the death of of Henry.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there was not that. not as well as he framed the maid. No, not as <laughs> effective. But there. but not but bad. There, we could get into the whole uh, ideas about their justice system and. Also, like, the, just the nature of justice in this story. Yeah. Because the monster does feel justified in all his actions. Yeah.
1: I do remember when I was teaching this book, um, the framing of the maid is actually the one that bothered the students the most. Mm-hmm. It,
2: it feels really bad because because uh, Victor is there and he's like, I, I know it wasn't her. Even though he doesn't know it wasn't her. He mm-hmm. suspects and believes that it wasn't her because he saw the monster. And now he's unshakably convinced I mean, that the monster didn't. Obviously, it. the murder of a child well,
1: bothered the students. I'm not trying to say any of these are. <laughs> you know but, they're all horrible, but yeah, that yes. was the one that they felt like was the least excusable by the monster. Because I mean, that is also the most premed. I mean, yeah, he's premeditating mm-hmm. a lot of these, but, uh, but but he
2: framed somebody to make them look guilty and be killed, and and that seems
1: really like, like the murder of the child is an act of passion that is yeah. not planned. Yeah, right? yeah, but then the framing you're starting to enter a different level of evil that is mm-hmm. I again mean, it, uh, it's a it's our justice system punishes both. Murder, the crimes of passion, and premeditated murder, but it punishes them differently. It says there's yeah. a different scale of evil that's
0: mm-hmm. on display with those. Yeah. And uh, speaking of all this framing, we know you monster tried to frame Victor for Henry Clerval's death. Why didn't he frame Victor for his wife's death? That's
1: the one that I expected <laughs> yeah. him to immediately be blamed for. And yeah. Had to yeah. And and, and nobody and and someone was in the window.
2: Yeah, Yeah, and then it was like, oh, we can see him in the window. And then that's a really haunting imagery that, like, that's one of the most gothic images that she presents where it's like the the monster is in the window smiling as he sees Victor suffer.
1: Yeah, and I I remember that one from the black and white comic book adaptation Mm -hmm. that I picked up from the library. It was him in the window and there was a body on the bed right in Mm -hmm. front of the window. And I think there was lightning behind of course. Yeah. And, you know, and so, that like
2: the description of that tableau, I was like, that's striking.
1: <laughs> and I think it's one that gets um drawn by artists quite a lot. Yes. is that moment and then the creation, which isn't described as much in the text. Um, but yeah, you know, Mary Shelley paints the word picture for that tableau, like, yeah, really well. Evolving. Yeah, you
0: kind of have the first act, uh, end of the first act, and end of the second act,
1: yeah, yeah. Um,
0: I think I lost where I was going. Well, then, um Circling back around to, very early in conversation, the <laughs> Uh Frankenstein's not the monster. Frankenstein is the monster. Well, this gets into to do the, my question of the nature of monstrosity. How can we define both of them as monsters? Because they both are. Right. Yeah. I mean, Frankenstein never should have done the things that he did.
1: Right. I mean, when we said they're foils, I mean... The, 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 and this the, is... The well-structured foils in literature are both simultaneously mirror images but complete opposites. Which mm. it seems impossible to do, but it works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in literature. And and that's certainly what we're getting at this. Which is also, I think, why I am not as bothered by some as the confusion between Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's enough similarities. There's enough
0: conflation there <laughs> yes. that yeah. can work.
2: Yeah. Um so Victor Frankenstein never 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 should have tried to bring Dead body back to life. To yeah.
0: Back. Yeah. So yeah, so I think that's uh, how we label things monstrous has a lot to do with morality. Mm-hmm. Uh, we th- have things that we consider acceptable and things that are not acceptable. And yes, what, uh, Victor trying to create life is not acceptable. Particularly
1: like grave robbing, yeah, yeah. stitching different bodies together, and then
0: also just a, just a quick thought: How do you make giant eyeballs? <laughs> I mean, I'm mean, surely... hung
1: up on the on the legs, T- trying to get them tall
0: enough. Teeth? How does that work? Yeah, hands. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I like assume... you could do muscles and bones. I could see yeah, that. I assume, but... But it's I the assume... structure of the skull, and yeah. so maybe that's well. And I can see I jamming mean, it in the more I brains. Guess, I guess
2: I guess if you just add more teeth and you've expanded <laughs> but the jaw... Like, but like, it's like, you know, it it teeth like the to, tooth
0: teeth. size. Yeah. Teeth. Well, <laughs> no, you just
2: add more teeth. And that's where they start getting into his proportions are yeah. wrong because but, it's like... Yeah, like
0: how do you make giant eyeballs?
2: <laughs> I
1: would just say it's, it's going to have to be actually a smaller head on a larger body. But,
2: and <laughs> and that, that's, again, maybe one of the disproportionate... You're yeah. entering the
1: valley where like, yeah. you're human-like but you're not human. Yeah. And that's um, disconcerting.
2: So... The other thing that I think is really, like, where you get into is like, Victor, you've screwed up, is that the monster comes alive, Victor just runs away, and kind of tries to pretend that it didn't happen, and and he tries to deny it, and he he does get sick, and and Henry has to arrive and, and nurse him back to health for, like, two years, but he's saying, like, maybe I didn't do that maybe yeah, i did he, he, he yeah. does not
0: take responsibility for his actions and yeah. this is throughout it's not just yeah he, he doesn't
2: he doesn't he doesn't say i know who the murderer was it was the monster that i created he never Puts himself at risk. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think that abandonment of his creation is really where the. I mean, yeah. that's where the monster, where the creature becomes a monster, is because of that moment. Well,
0: yeah. I don't think the, mon- the creature becomes a monster at that moment. He becomes a monster, or it says that when, he, start- yeah. when yeah. he starts to become a monster. Yeah, when he starts, he
2: doesn't have the nurturing
0: because yeah, he doesn't have the nurturing. He's trying to build morality, and he's always punished for good deeds, and that creates this. Mm -hmm. uh real breakdown in his what we would consider normal psychology yeah understandably so (laughs) yeah Um, which is why you use the murders but
1: you understand but yeah like
0: this is why we have Mm -hmm. sympathy for him Mm -hmm. even if he is evil Mm -hmm. yeah and so i think that's one of
2: the the worst i I mean worst is relative and and everything but it's one of the things that frankenstein does that it's like oh, you really screwed up here and and, and you've really brought this... Yeah, you've really started to bring this on yourself and you're going to blame the monster. But if you had taken responsibility or even even ended the monster yourself when you had the right, chance... Which would
0: be a form of taking responsibility. Yeah,
2: yeah. He really just never took responsibility in, in any way for it or for the actions of the monster afterwards. He yeah. He blames the monster and he never says like but I created the monster. Well, yeah,
1: because he refuses to create another because he says, I made this, I unleashed this, and so I will not unleash another. Yeah. So I think but, there's, but, but some, then, there's guilt for it, but, but then he's,
2: not... he's allowing himself to, like, assuage that guilt by being punished by the deaths of the loved ones. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I deserve all this punishment. Kill my loved ones to punish me. It's like, well, that's maybe not a great method. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: more secondary punishment. Yeah. And he's having emotional pain from this, and it is causing, like... Breakdowns that take years for him to recover from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In these instances. Um, and he says in the end, like, it's only his hatred of the monster that allows him to pull out of his grief fueled, um, like, emotional break from reality. Well, that,
0: that was another thing that I've wondered. And with my very uh, poor standing of mental health, as most of us instead do, Frankenstein pipe holder, he seems to go from one extreme to another. He's either very happy, or very miserable. Yeah, <laughs> Nothing I, in between.
1: I'm not familiar enough to diagnose it all.
0: But yeah. I would say yeah. So, so to be clear, like, if you have bipolar disorder, we're not trying to yeah. assign anything or say that you are a monster. <laughs> we are avoiding, like, we are very much layman in this and trying to come to some idea.
1: I'm willing to say Victor has issues.
0: Yeah. Mm, I don't know. I
1: cannot label what those issues are. Yeah, I think yeah and, and we're
2: dealing some... with, and, I mean, we are dealing with one um, a description of a character
0: mm-hmm.
2: from from his own perspective filtered also, through someone else. Also, it's ago. it's it's from yeah two centuries ago. The sophistication with which, even if she wanted to say he has X psychological disorder, and here's how I'm going to give the key so that the
0: reader can identify that, it's like that's and nowhere near well, what we would use to interpret it. So I, I will say that being friends with Lord Byron, being married to Percy Shelley, <laughs> she's, she had she's, exposure. Yeah, she like these romantic poets. We elevate them now, but. They probably had some uh, stuff. They, yeah. like they probably had depression, mm-hmm. uh some of these diso- what we would label now disorders. Yeah,
2: but we don't know so, what they were I think or had, what she's keying you know, into sort of them. Of like or, she, I, I would
0: assume she had some firsthand
2: experience yes, with it. Yes, but but with what we don't know necessarily yeah. and how she would interpret that to portray in a novel, mm-hmm. you know. It it's going through a lot of filters. Yes.
1: <laughs> um and I just jumping back to the original question that launched us down this the monsters or the creatures' monstrosity is uh, we see the development of the twisted morality that, yeah. that he creates, where he's punished for what's good. And but then and it's he,
0: all because he is othered based on his appearance yes, alone. Yes.
1: Um, but then he decides that his creator must be punished because his creator made him yeah. this form that's going to be othered. I,
0: I think that's the right point is it's one thing for him to be othered, it's one, another thing for him to decide to do these, as you say, premeditated mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, the murders.
1: And, uh, I mean, kind of what Andrew said, like, also, I'm going to punish my creator, but I'm also going to deliberately punish innocents that surround my creator.
2: In order to punish my creator. In order to punish him. Yeah, and, and Victor doesn't really key into that at any point. Like, even when the monster says, like, I'll be there on your wedding night. Victor seems to think that the monster is going to come kill him. And so
1: he, pre- he, pre- he prepares himself for a duel with the monster. Yeah, yes. he's
2: like, and I go and I search the hallways and everything. I'm going to leave my, then, my wife alone. And then there's a scream on the other side of the mansion. It's like, oh, it was, he he came to kill her. It's like, Victor, you should have seen that coming. <laughs> yeah. Like, really?
1: There Haven't you seen pattern. the pattern? Yes. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, Victor is... A mad genius. He created life. He's also an idiot many times. Yes, <laughs>
2: or or I mean, and maybe it's just the extension of his hubris. Is that the monster will come for me, mm. and and is like I will be prepared because the monster will come for me. I can I can defeat him if I'm prepared. It's like, but what? Like you you don't think
0: that he's not prepare, coming for you. You don't prepare anyone else. Yeah. Well, I have some final thoughts to wrap us up. All right, if you will, because I think sometimes. What is not said can be just as interesting as what is. We can consider what Victor experienced while he hunted his monster during the third act of the novel. He was likely worried about the notoriety his name might bring, as well as someone might accuse him of these rumors of murdering his wife, and therefore traveled incognito. His preferred pseudonym may have been the opposite of a portmanteau. I could not find a term for this. Uh, The rather obvious Frank N. Stein. (laughs) All this led him to become a bit paranoid, and he started to experience what would later be known as the Bonner-Meinhof phenomenon, <laughs> that he felt like he heard his name everywhere. He first noticed this when he began praying to the patron saint of monster hunters, St. Ein. There were actually two St. Ein's: one from Spain, one from Germany. To differentiate, they were referred to as the Spanish St. Ein and the Frank St. Ein. <laughs> it happened that while traveling through London... Victor lost his wallet during a ho- holiday weekend. The banks being closed, he decided to find some temporary work, and headed toward London's West End. West being one of the cardinal directions, this is known in Cockney rhyming slang as the direct or frank end. <laughs> while today the West End is John, not-
1: John, how, how long is this fun run going to go?
0: <laughs> Buckle up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh,
0: while today the West End is known for theater, then it was known as a center for metalwork but Victor could not get hired at even the most working-class shop, making Frank N's tin. Oh, oh, John. (laughs) However, some budding entrepreneurs were opening a theater in the area, and Victor lucked into some manual labor, helping to finish construction. His first job was to stain the wood for the stage, but he didn't have a brush. One of the other workers showed him a trick. By unwinding the end of the rope, the fray can stain.
1: Oh, oh, John. Oh, this... (laughs) I don't know that these walks are worth it, John.
0: (laughs) (laughs) During that first day, Victor was able to see some of the actresses auditioning for the premiere play. He was particularly impressed by one Francine Whitehead, though the director wasn't so sure. It was one of the the owners who decided that Fran can stay in.
1: Okay, that one was worth it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) After this particularly stressful day, Victor decided he could use his earnings to enjoy some comfort food. He found a German restaurant and ordered a Frankfurter and beer. On second thought, he made the beer large. Right, the witcher, the waitress said, one Frank and Stein. <laughs> I've proven that one. <laughs> the next day, while the stage was drying, the cast began a table read. Being educated, Victor volunteered to read the stage directions. The play was a comedy about Benjamin Franklin and his secretary, wow. Samuel Stanford, traveling through France. The owners hoped that mocking both the Americans and the French would prove popular with the British audience. The play opened with Franklin entering Entree farm past a pig pen. Victor read the abbreviated directions, Frank and oh. oh Big Stie.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: no, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you think that one was a stretch? <laughs> Later, the, the French army, abbreviated as F, were to form ranks and stand in line. But there was a <laughs> blot on the page, and Victor read the directions instead as F-Rank and S-Line. The banks opened the next day, and Victor was able to withdraw his money and live as a gentleman again. He decided to stay in London and see the play's opening. Arriving at the theater, he saw that the company had mistakenly used the abbreviated title for the posters. Instead of Benjamin Franklin and Samuel Stanford's Misadventures in France, a picaresque play, it read, Frankenstein in Paris. This was not a good sign in any sense of the word. And the play was terrible. Okay,
1: that was the best one. <laughs> the, the, the play on
0: the side. Yeah. <laughs> one reviewer stated British theater is the theater of Shakespeare, of Marlowe, and of Johnson. This play was to be Frank a stain on the English, nay, the world stage. Oh. The theater closed within days of financial failure and remained abandoned for years. Because of that review, the building became known as the Frank and Stane. As Victor was preparing to chase his creature across the Arctic, he noticed in the paper a wedding announcement for the actress Francine Whitehead to one Alfred Einstein. He kept the clipping as a reminder that there was some good in the world, something worth protecting from his monster. Captain Robert Walton was surprised to find the clipping among the Doctor's effects because he was actually acquainted with the couple, though, as their friend, he knew them as Alan Frankenstein.
1: I thought when he went and got money from the <coughs> bank, he was be withdrawing francs. <laughs> that's what I assumed yeah. as well.
0: But we're in England.
1: It's true. It's true. Yeah. And you'd hate just strain credulity <laughs> for the sake of a pun,
0: John. Of course I would. <laughs> now, listeners, if you enjoyed that pun run, consider supporting the Protagonist Pos- Podcast on, d- uh, by donating on Patreon. I'm just if, saying. If you did not like that pun run... Consider donating on Patreon so Joe could get a higher caliber of guest.
1: (laughs) No, I was going to say, you you could donate and request either more pun runs (laughs) or or fewer. fewer. I mean, respect whichever we got more of, those kinds of So,
0: yes, vote with your dollars, people.
1: (sighs) Oh, John, I had no idea that was coming. Uh...
0: I I spent more time on that than on the summary. I was holding that in reserve without telling you just for your pure reactions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was was, was my pure reaction. (laughs) Uh... Again, not the highlight for me was, this was not a good sign. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, well, with that, we're going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Prodinas Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 77, when we talked about Jane Eyre, or episode number 148, when we talked about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, both of which are quite gothic.
0: Mm. You yeah, haven't remembered the episode where you did a pun run?
1: That was, uh, was it Jane Eyre? Or was it, uh, no. Wuthering Heights? It was Wuthering mm-hmm. Heights that I did a pun run.
0: No, it was Pride and Prejudice.
1: No, it was Wuthering Heights because there was a Rochester pun.
0: <laughs> didn't you, But didn't you do one of, uh, Austin's titles?
1: I'm not going to roll it out. We've 1200. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> um you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod at J. Dorowski and our producer Andrew is at Minute, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com protagonistpodcast. We enjoy our conversations there with listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com protagonist. Thank you again for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So love her.
2: Well your your chair has a facing direction and it's not (laughs) it's not this. So I
0: thought you might prefer I don't know what you're saying. I'm just trying to get natural. natural.